Oh, well, welcome to this third session on a study of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I hope it has been a blessing. Uh, what we want to do is uh, follow up our first session, a look at the subject from the Old Testament perspective. Last time, a look at what Jesus actually taught. And in a few moments, we're going to look at what Paul taught. So you can be opening your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will be there uh, for the rest of our time. Someone sent me this little story. Earl and Bubba sat quietly fishing on the bank when Bubba says, I think I'm going to divorce my wife. She ain't spoke to me in over two months. Earl thinks a moment, then turns to his friend and says, Better think it over. Women like that are hard to find. (laughs) Well, I hope this series has caused you to think it over when it comes to the question of getting divorces. Because I think the Word of God has been made too complicated. It's not that complicated. God is against divorce. God is for marriage. Now, leaders of churches have two responsibilities. They have to hold up God's holy standard. And they have to build up the people who fail to meet it. And at some level, that is all of us. In other words, they have to appeal to the ideal. And they have to deal with with the real. And so in the course or context of this study that means they have to hold up Genesis 2:24. A man should leave his father and mother and he should cleave to his wife and they should become one flesh. End of story. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That's the ideal. But church leaders have to deal with the real. And in terms of our current study this means two th- principles that at first seem mutually exclusive, but in fact, I believe, are mutually compatible and biblical. It means that we must insist that marriage is right and sins against marriage are wrong. It also means we must insist that divorce is wrong and giving hope to the divorced is right. And I think that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians Seven. So we're just going to work through that chapter together, and then I'm going to give a word to uh, some different uh, people in different marriage situations, and I'm going to conclude with some questions I've anticipated you may have about this series, starting in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, they had written to Paul about this matter. 
And evidently there was a phrase floating around the church in Corinth, it's good for a man not to marry. I don't think that's what Paul is teaching. I think that's what Paul is repeating. Just like in the earlier chapter, he said, some of you are saying, all things are permissible for me. Well, yes and no. All things may be permissible. That doesn't mean all things are good. I'm not going to be a slave to anything. And so now he's going to correct what some are saying. It's good for a man not to marry. I think to appreciate the background of that statement, we have to try to appreciate how the Christian faith so totally impacted the social order of the ancient world, particularly involving women. Even secular historians will tell you no single person so changed the status and worth of women than the influence and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And so now you have a lot of women in Corinth who are basically wrestling with this very tricky theological question. You tell me I am now married to Christ because I've become a Christian, but I'm also married to this man who wants me to sleep with him. Now, how can I be spending time with him in the bedroom if I'm supposed to be spending time in the closet with my new husband, Jesus Christ? And and there are some confusing uh, theologies being passed around regarding obligations to marriage unions. And some of these women are even thinking, you know what? I don't have to sleep with my husband anymore. I'm married to Christ now. You have some very interesting issues involving women in the Corinthian correspondence. Uh, since I've already got people who disagree with me on what I teach on divorce, I might as well go out and throw out something else you can disagree with me about, role of women. It is undeniable to any honest reader of Scripture that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says women can pray and prophesy when the church comes together. He does say they should have a covering over their head so that they will show submission uh, specifically to their husbands. Then he gets to chapter 14 and says, I want women remaining silent. Well, what's he saying there? He just said they could speak. Well, that word women, it could also be translated wives, I think, is indicating that you have some real issues with Christian women understanding how becoming a Christian has affected their marriage. Um, It's interesting, in other places, he will say there's no Male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. He'll say something like that in Corinth, but he doesn't say male or female. It's true that in Christ there's no male or female, but there's still husband and wife. And evidently these women are behaving when they come together in such a way, expressing their freedom, that it's showing they don't submit to their husbands. And Paul is saying, stop that. Go home and ask your husbands those questions. Whatever you do, when you come together, you're still married to your husband. And you show submission. He's not saying a woman can't speak in the assembly. He's saying she better behave in such a way that even the unbeliever knows Christians still teach that the husband is the head of the home. So you have this stuff going on in Corinth. And these women are struggling with their relationship to their husband in view of the fact that they're now married to Christ. Now, Paul says... I wish you could all be like me. But only some have this gift that I have to remain single. And since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. 
Please notice, he does not say each never-before-married man should have his own wife. He says, if you have the gift, like I have, to remain single, I think that's best. But most don't. So each man should have his own wife so that you won't burn with passion. In fact, he says, one of the chief responsibilities in marriage is to make sure that your mate's sexual uh, needs are met. And so he says, there may be a season where you will mutually agree to separate sexually to devote yourself to prayer. Now, I've got to say, in my 30 years of preaching, when I counsel with people who aren't having sex, it's not because they're devoting themselves to prayer. But that's the only reason Paul gives. Paul says, your, wife, uh, your body belongs to your husband, uh, and his body belongs to the wife, and each should be married, because marriage is God's divinely provided context for sexual expression. It helps prevent immorality. By the way, that's why it should not be surprising that Satan would invent theologies that forbid people to marry. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that these people that forbid marriage, this is a doctrine of demons. The Christian community should promote marriage. And married Christians should fully embrace all the obligations of it. So Paul is saying, don't ever use your Christian faith as a reason to defraud your mate. Don't ever say to your mate, oh, I'm growing so close to Christ now, I no longer have a need to be intimate with you. Marriage is to be held in honor, and the marriage bed is to be kept pure. Now, that's the ideal. But in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to deal with the real. This is the longest single text in the entire New Testament on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And would you please notice in this entire chapter of 40 verses, not one single time will he use the word adultery. Because he is not dealing with the situation Jesus dealt with where men were trying to legalize their adultery, putting away the wife of their covenant because they had found someone else they wanted to be with. That's not what Paul is dealing with. He's not addressing men who are divorcing their wives because they want to go marry someone else. He's going to address five groups. We're going to take them one at a time. We're going to start with the unmarried in chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. He says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now the word unmarried throughout this chapter is going to be the word agamos. Gamos was the Greek word for marriage. A was the way the Greeks would say the opposite. Just like we have the word typical. And atypical means the opposite of typical. So agamos are the not married. Now the question is who are they? The way I see it there are three groups of people who are not married. There are the never married, what Paul will call the virgins. There are the widows or widowers. And there are the divorced. These are the three groups of people who are agamos, not married. Now, he says to the agamos, who's he addressing? Well, he's not meaning the widows because he talks about them. 
in the same verse. And he's not meaning the virgins. He will talk about them later in the chapter. So if the Agamos are not the virgins and they're not the widows, who are they? They're the divorced. And he says clearly here, to the divorced then and to the widows. I wish you could be like me, but if you must, then marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, why would he start with those two groups? Why would he start first with the divorced and the widows? Think about this. Who would be most susceptible to burning with passion? Would it not be the people who have experienced sexual intimacy because they've been married before? Would they not at some level experience temptation that the virgin doesn't quite understand yet because they haven't had that experience? So he starts off saying to those of you out there who've been there, you're divorced or you're widowed. Now, it's best, I think, if you could remain like me. But if you must marry, then marry. It's better to do that than to burn with passion. Clearly, in the start of this chapter, he tells divorced people, if you must, marry. And then he addresses the marriage of believers, verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, and if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. He's talking here about divorce. That word separate clearly is talking about divorce. It's agamos there in verse 11 again. He's giving a summation of Jesus' teaching when he says not I, but the Lord, what, he doesn't mean uh, that I don't have an opinion on this subject. He just means I'm summing up what Jesus taught. Here's the thing. Jesus did not deal with believers married to unbelievers. Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is addressing two people in covenant relationship to Yahweh who get married to each other. That's what Jesus talked about. Paul will talk about the other later. But the Lord talked about two people that are supposed to be following God and they're married. Should they be getting divorces? And Jesus' clear answer that we saw last time was no. And please notice when Paul sums up Jesus' teaching, he does not give an exception clause. I don't think Jesus did. Paul expects Christian mates to stay together or to stay open to reconciling and getting back together. Even if they divorce, Agamos, verse 11, they should stay open to reconciliation. You see, Paul doesn't believe a Christian marriage should end in divorce because Christians have resources that non-Christians do not have. They have the Word of God. They have the indwelling Spirit of God. They have the body of Christ to support them. And so Paul basically is saying, I can't fathom two people that both say they are committed followers of Jesus who have the power of His Word, that have the power of the Spirit, that have the power of the body, getting divorces. Because the whole message of the Gospel is reconciliation. And if Two people that tell me they love Jesus can't in their own family model reconciliation. Then what message do we have to the world? Christians shouldn't be getting divorces. If they do divorce, let them remain in a state where they can repent and be reconciled. It seems that a Christian divorce from a Christian in Paul's view was still under a kind of bondage. A Christian divorce from a non-Christian is not under. That's a hard word to hear. But I think it is exactly what Jesus taught. Then he deals with spiritually mixed marriage. 
verse 12 through 24. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Let me just say it. What he means there is, now I'm going to talk about something Jesus didn't talk about. He's not saying, I'm just giving a flippant opinion because I'm just a man. He knows he's an inspired apostle. He'll say later in chapter 14, I think I have the Spirit of Christ. He's writing Spirit-given counsel here. He's simply saying, Jesus didn't talk now about what I'm about to talk about when a believer is married to an unbeliever. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave and you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. But brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Jesus dealt with divorce questions where both mates were in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Paul's dealing with something else. An unbeliever has entered the equation, and when they do, the rules change. And this was a huge issue in the early church. Because as the gospel would go into these cities uh, and be preached, just like it does today here and in the mission field, it was not uncommon for one mate, particularly a woman, to accept the teaching and for the other mate not to do so. And so it's not like these people disobeyed the will of God and went and married an unbeliever. They were both unbelievers when they got married. And now one of them has become a believer. And Paul is going to talk about that. And it's interesting to me. He is going to hold two believers married to each other to a higher standard than he is a believer married to an unbeliever. Which, by the way, he does consistently. In chapter 5, he says, you've got a man living with your father's wife in your church. You need to disfellowship him. Then he's going to say, now, I'm not saying you should treat unbelievers that way. If you didn't associate with unbelievers who were immoral, you could never win them to Christ. He holds believers to a higher standard. In chapter 6, he says, I cannot believe you got believers taking believers to court. Don't you know you're going to judge angels someday and you can't work this out among yourselves? Now, he doesn't say a believer can't take an unbeliever to court. But believer to believer is held to a higher standard than believer to unbeliever. He's going to do the same thing in marriage. In a spiritually mixed marriage, the Christian must still uphold the ideal. He's going to forbid the Ezra policy we saw two uh, sessions ago 
these people didn't break the law of God getting into these marriages. They were married before they were converted. And so he's saying, don't ever use your faith as a reason to leave a willing but unbelieving mate. Just like he says, don't use your faith as a reason not to have sexual relations with your mate. Don't you use your faith as a reason to get out of a marriage to an unbeliever that wants to be married to you. A believer gives the home a Christian influence it would not otherwise have. Again, realize what a critical issue this was in the earliest days of the church. Peter's going to deal with it in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's going to say, you women married to these men that aren't Christians. You live with them respectfully and gently and submissively and quietly. Like Sarah did to Abraham. uh, Calling him Lord. My favorite verse to put on the refrigerator. And (laughs) in this way, you may have an influence and win him to Christ. Paul says the home is sanctified. Uh, Not in the sense that the people in the home are saved because you're a believer, but in the sense that it is set apart for a position of blessing and privilege exposed regularly to the gospel and the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me that many slanders were made against the earliest Christians. Uh, You can find secular writers accusing them of being cannibals because of the rumors that they ate the flesh of Christ, uh, that they were traitors because they wouldn't call Caesar Lord. But one thing even the secular critics never leveled against Christians in the early days was that they were home wreckers. That they didn't go around breaking up marriages. You never found in the early church an evangelist doing what some evangelists do today with the traditional teaching on divorce. Going into someone's home and saying, oh, have you been married before? Well, I can't baptize you until you get out of your marriage and go back to your first mate. Or I will baptize you, but then you must immediately repent and divorce your wife. You don't ever find that in the early days of the church. That Christians were known for tearing up marriages. And so he says, if you are in a situation married to someone who doesn't follow Christ, but they want to be married to you. You stay where you were called. But while the believing maid is not to be the aggressor in dissolving a marriage to an unbeliever, neither are they obligated to compromise their faith in order to preserve the marriage. You see, Paul said, I'll be a Jew to the Jews to win Jews. I'll be a Greek to the Greek to win Greeks. I'll be a slave to the slaves. But I won't be a pagan for anybody. If the unbelieving mate does not want to be married to someone with Christian standards. Paul says the believer does not have to fight to preserve the marriage or remain unmarried. In hopes of reconciliation if there is a divorce. Because the guiding principle here in verse 15. God has called us to live in peace. Let's park there for a moment and let me talk about that. I don't think anyone teaches against divorce any stronger than I do. But please understand, Paul says, the goal is not the avoidance of divorce. The goal is a peaceful marriage. It's important to keep marriages together. It's more important 
to keep the peace. And so while we should not separate what God has put together, neither should we try to keep together something God has said is time to separate. One of the mistakes I think well-meaning Christians sometimes give to people in bad marriages is, well, let's not divorce at all costs. You just live separate from each other. And we counsel these long separations. Please notice that is not Paul's counsel. There needs to be reconciliation and peaceful marriage or there needs to be divorce. Because separation is not peace. It's just cold war. Some of you know that uh, when I was young, my parents separated for almost a year. And praise God, they came back together and restored their marriage. But I lived as a boy in a separated home. And I can tell you, that is not peace. Not to children. When you never know which one of your parents is really the one in charge. When you never know when they're together how you're to act or how they're about to act. That is not the illustration God designed marriage to give to the world. Of His commitment to His people. That is not the answer. Paul says there needs to be marriage or there needs to be divorce. There comes a time to create closure. It is not healthy to continue to live in limbo when one person adamantly refuses to be open to reconciliation over an extended period of time. At least they're not divorced. That's not the goal. The goal is peace. Now, I've got to raise an issue Paul does not address. Paul's addressed believer married to believer. And now he's addressed believer married to unbeliever. What he does not address that comes up a lot today in church. What happens when a believer is married to a believer who behaves consistently like an unbeliever? What do you do then? In my judgment, what Paul has said here applies. That if a believer is married to a person that claims to be a believer but consistently behaves as one who does not follow Jesus, there needs to be marriage or there needs to be divorce. And then he addresses the never married, starting in verse 25. Now, about virgins. Remember, Paul has three words. He's got virgins, he's got widows, he's got the agamos, the divorced. Now about virgins or the never married. I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Agamos. Do not look for a wife, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Let me stop for a moment. I'm really not sure how that could be more clear. He says to the not married, to the divorced, and to the virgin, it's best that you not marry. But if you do, you have not sinned. He has said it twice now. If you are divorced... And you get married. 
You have not sinned. But then he says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. (laughs) What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they did not. Those who were happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin. See again, unmarried woman is divorced. A divorced woman or a never married woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion and has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. It's clear here, Paul is saying, to the virgin and to the divorced, if you marry, you have not sinned. Again, notice, he never uses the word adultery because he's not addressing what Jesus addressed, those who were getting divorces for the purpose of remarrying and committing legalized adultery. That's not what's going on here. He's not commending divorce, but he's not condemning the divorce to a state of continual burning. He says the divorced and the never married may marry, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Now, in the context, I believe what he is referring to is the upcoming uh, outbreak of persecution under Nero and he is saying because of the present crisis it's best if you don't have family concerns right now it's hard for us to imagine the intense pressure the earliest Christians faced imagine being before a court and your family is brought in and you are given the choice renounce Christ call Caesar Lord Or watch your family be tortured. Some of your earliest brothers and sisters had to make that choice. Paul says in view of the present crisis. I would tell you to be like me. You you haven't sinned if you marry. It's better if you don't. Again remember the context. Because Paul must be balanced here. With what he's going to say to people in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 5, there he's got some young widows that are becoming gossips. Going home to home. He says, stop that and get married. Paul's not against marriage. But he believes in view of the present crisis, it's not a good idea. Marriage is good, but not married is better 
for some. One of the things that this study has convicted me of is the need for our churches to elevate the view and status of singleness in the body of Christ. For too long we have viewed singleness as almost a disease that you hope your kids don't catch. It's okay if they're 22 and single. But if they're 32 and they're 42 and not married, we get very concerned. And then we hear that they have gotten engaged to a non-Christian and we celebrate. Because at least they'll be married. As if to be married to someone that doesn't follow Christ is better than to remain single and be fully devoted to Christ. Paul would say that makes no sense. Some of the uh, greatest mentors in my life, professors, missionaries, uh, mentors, have chosen deliberately to be single. And be devoted their whole life to the kingdom of God. They had that gift. And people who can do that should be honored in the church. Not held in suspicion. Each, Paul says, must be settled in their own mind. And if you can live without marriage, do it. And be respected for doing so. If you need or want to be married, do it. And be respected for doing so. And then finally he addresses the widowed. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Remember in our first teaching how in that ancient culture, if a woman was divorced, she had nothing but the clothes on her back. There was intense pressure in ancient society if a woman was divorced or widowed to quickly remarry get under the roof and protection of some man to be provided for there are still many parts of the world today where if a woman is widowed she has very few options besides prostitution to support herself so don't take lightly what Paul is saying here to these women this is a strong word calling them to the cross he's saying to these widows If you find yourself in this state and you desperately want to come under the protection of some man, don't you do it if he doesn't follow Christ. And that's a hard word. But that's God's word. Again, he counsels remaining single. But if she marries, it should be a situation that will leave her free to honor Christ. Now, let me sum up. Not just what I think Paul is saying, but what I think I've tried now to say for these three sessions to three groups of people. I have tried to say, number one, married people need to stay married. This is the consistent witness of the Bible. The divine ideal should be maintained as long as possible. This is true even if divorce is allowable. Just because something is allowable doesn't mean that it's best. Sometimes the most Christian thing to do is not to exercise your freedom, but to sacrifice, come under the shadow of the cross, and do what's right and best. This will require being dependent on a supernatural supply of grace. I counsel so many Christian couples who say, well, I just don't have the strength to stay in this marriage. Nobody does. 
No one in their own flesh has the strength to live up to the ideal. It takes the infusion of the grace of God to live like God wants you to live with your mate. I'm so grieved every time I hear Christians say, well, I just don't want to stay in my marriage because God wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be godly. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to depend on Him for divine strength to live out the call of the cross. That's what God wants. And so I don't consider myself a very good marriage counselor. And people will tell you empathy and mercy is not my spiritual gift. Uh, prophecy is my spiritual gift. I don't consider myself a good counselor of any kind. People come to me and say, here's my dilemma. And I say, well, here's what the Word of God says, so stop it. <laughs> um, and so when I do marriage counseling, I have a rather unique way. I ask each couple or each person, do you believe in Easter? Well, yeah. And I'll say, do you believe in Easter? Well, yes. Okay. So you both tell me you believe in Easter. Well, yeah, but we're here to talk about our marriage. Well, we're going to talk about your marriage. I just need to establish first, you both say that you believe that God resurrects dead things. You're both telling me that you believe God and His supernatural power takes what looks hopeless and makes it alive again. That's what you're telling me, right? And now they're backing up a little bit (laughs) because they're recognizing that it is an incredibly negative witness to the world when Christians divorce. We have seen there may be occasions where divorce is the lesser of two evils. When a mate is continually abusive, continually immoral. A situation where your walk with God is compromised by the behavior of your mate. But the leaders of the church must constantly uphold the ideal. And the young people that grow up in the church must hear a loud, clear, uncompromised message. Married people need to stay married. Second, I think the Bible teaches single people, including the single again, may marry, but only in the Lord. Now you may stop and say, wait, it didn't say that divorce have to marry only the Lord. It said that the wi- widows do. Okay. I think I'm on pretty strong ground here. The consistent message of Scripture is that God's people should marry in the faith. Otherwise, the illustration of Christ's relationship to the church is lost. But as long as it is in the Lord, there is no prohibition in the Old Testament. Or the New Testament for the not married to get married. There may be pastoral reasons to counsel someone not to get married. But there are no moral reasons to prevent them from doing so. Remarriage can be a wonderfully healing gift of God. Many of you in this room, many of you that are going to watch this tape, know for yourself or know in the lives of your children that remarriage was God's gift to a broken life. The grace that saves the soul can also save the body from a lifetime of frustration. Single people, 
including the single again, may marry, but only in the Lord. And then, divorced people need to repent if they've sinned and move forward honoring God. Now, I say if they've sinned because there are some divorces where innocent people are sinned against. Jesus alludes to that in Matthew 5 when he says, By divorcing her, you adulterated her. She didn't want the divorce. This is your problem, not hers. That happens. But in the vast majority of divorces, there was fault on both sides. Every divorce is at some level an act of rebellion against God's original design. And divorce is sin. But it is not the unpardonable sin. How do you repent of divorce? I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. But let me just say, it will evolve accepting responsibility for wrongful action along with the determination to see God's help in making necessary changes, which in most cases is going to mean making that next marriage work. The answer is not to destroy a second marriage or to demand celibacy. I would prefer to do what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. Is that going to encourage divorce? To offer grace to divorced people? Does it encourage lying if you offer grace to liars? Or stealing if you offer grace to thieves? What we've got to wrestle with is this. Is, the, is it good news or is it just so-so news? I believe the message of redemptive grace speaks to all human failure, not just some. The singular problem of the traditional divorce and remarriage position was this, that the cross can't forgive all sin. And I don't think that is biblical. Let me speak more to this. I've tried to anticipate a few questions I think people may have regarding this teaching. Question number one. So you're saying, Rick, that divorce isn't a big deal as long as you didn't get a divorce for the purpose of going to marry somebody else. No, I'm not saying that. I am saying that not everybody that gets a divorce is trying to commit legalized adultery. But every divorce is a rebellion against God's original design for marriage. Every divorce is evidence of hard-heartedness on the part of at least one mate, usually both. Divorce, like any manifestation of sin, breaks God's heart. Divorce is terrible. But it is not unredeemable. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Second question. Well, doesn't repentance of the sin of marriage breaking mean going back to the original mate? Just like if I repent of stealing, I'm going to take back what I stole? Listen, if reconciliation with the first mate can be pursued, a Christian should try to do it. In most cases, though, that is not going to be a possibility. In most cases... The couple has remarried or the person divorced has no desire for reconciliation. And here is the problem 
with the traditional position. It wants you to fix a sin by committing another one. No New Testament passage gives me the authority to tear up anybody's marriage. Sometimes the damage caused by sin can't be fixed. You know, yes, if I steal $10 from you, I repent by bringing you back $10 plus interest. But if I poke out your eye, I can't fix that by giving you your sight back. If I murder your child, I can't fix that by giving you his life back. Some messes can't be fixed. They just have to be redeemed. And so, if you have been guilty of the sin of marriage breaking. Yes, you need to repent. But how do you do that? Well, first you must confess your sin to God. You must own up to your part in the sin of breaking a marriage. Second, you need to confess to others you have hurt by your sin. And that may well include your ex-spouse. The reality is sometimes we must grow in the Lord after our divorce before we are spiritually mature enough to recognize how we contributed to the failure of our marriage. And then third, you need to make the marriage you're in now work and don't commit that sin again. I had two friends when I was in college that dated, and the whole time they dated, they fought. They were always like this. And everyone knew they shouldn't get married, but there's that intense pressure, don't leave school not married, so they got married. And guess what? They fought and fought and fought. And then they got divorced. They since remarried, each has had three children. And my friend, the man, came to me a few years back and says... I realize now how I contributed to the failure of my first marriage. I realize my immaturity. That divorce was wrong. It should not have happened. How does he repent of that sin? By tearing up his second marriage? No. He has confessed his sin to God. He has confessed his sin to his first wife. And now he is living as a godly father and husband in his next marriage. That's repentance. Third question. How long should a believer remain open to reconciliation? Well, no Pharisaic timetable can be established. Every situation is different. For some, six months is too long. For some, six years is long enough. You need to remain open to reconciliation as long as God prompts you to do so. We need to give God a chance to do His resurrecting work. Uh, we have seen at our congregation through marriage reconciliation ministry scores of marriages that looked hopeless. Even divorced people where the power of Easter became real. And reconciliation happened. And the power of the cross was displayed. And healing took place. We need to let God do His resurrecting work. Still, the goal is not to avoid divorce. The goal is peace. And when it becomes clear that the marriage will never be peaceful, the Spirit will give the believer peace regarding the need to bury what is dead. And then finally, and I think this is the real problem some have. How can it be right for God or the church to extend marriage, or excuse me, to extend forgiveness to marriage breakers? 
And then let them escape justice for their sin. When people criticize me for my position, this is primarily the problem. They are angry that I am not hard enough on the guilty party that has hurt them or their children by divorce. The traditional position does seem to better satisfy our perceived sense of justice because it punishes the guilty party. He must or she must pay penance for the rest of their life. And some will say, your view lets marriage records get away with it. Well, let me be quick to say, nobody escapes the justice of God. No sinner is going to get away with anything. God is going to deal justly with hard-hearted, unrepentant sinners. Regardless of what their particular transgression might be. And let me also be quick to say, I'm willing to let God have that job. Only God knows the heart. Only God knows the whole story. Only God knows what justice requires. But let me say finally, though, part of our struggle is to accept the offense of the cross. There is a reason that Paul uses the word scandal on when he talks about the gospel. The cross is scandalous. It gives mercy to people that don't remotely deserve it. The gospel of grace is so radical that when it is preached accurately, it will cause some to think we're saying sin doesn't matter. Paul said in Romans 6, after five chapters of presenting the gospel, are you saying that we should just sin all we want so grace can rebound? Of course, I'm not saying that, but I understand how you could think that. Because when you preach the gospel, it is so radical, it is so scandalous, it could give some the impression we're saying sin doesn't matter. And the response of the legalist is this. We better water down the message of grace in order to keep those sinners in line. In short, let's don't make grace sound so good so that people will be. That's been legalism's approach for centuries. It doesn't work. And it robs the cross of its power. All of us here are in desperate need of the grace of God. And if you want your life to be measured by the standard of grace, you better be willing to let someone else live by that standard too. If I must err in a choice between mercy and judgment, I'm going to choose mercy every time because that's what I need. You see, if all we wanted to do was declare the ideal, ministry would be easy. And there are churches that will do that. If you've messed up your life, don't come to church here. We just want people who are doing it right. Now, your church won't grow. It'll be small. But you won't have long elders meetings. (laughs) But if you're going to preach the gospel, the scandalous message of grace, messy people are going to come because that's who get attracted. And ministry is long and exhausting when you have to deal with the real. We need patience. We need wisdom. We need strength. We need courage. We need compassion. And And we need to pray every day, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because when He comes, everything, will be fixed.
But until then, it can only be redeemed. Thank you. God bless.